Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. start our time together uh, by imagining one of our worst of all possible fears, one that we all share, uh, came true. Uh, and that is the thoughts that go on in our mind could be audibly heard by other people. Uh, and so I just want us to eavesdrop a little bit on this experience of insecurity and see what it sounds like. It is always second-guessing myself. Should I really have said that? Wouldn't it have been better if I had uh, just done this? I mean, it just we can always look back and see something we should have done different. Nothing just is. Uh, I send an email and I don't get a reply for uh, a long time. And I wonder, are they upset with me? Uh, and by long time, it can just mean however long it is that I want to hear back. Or uh, I get a reply back and I look at the phrasing that they used and I, I wonder if they meant something more than, than what they expressly said when they sent it. Life doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, at least not important. I get up, I have my breakfast, I get ready, I go to work, I go to school, I come home, I check the mail, there's junk mail, we eat leftovers. I mean, I do lots of stuff, and there's my daily routine and my weekly routine and my monthly rhythms, but it just doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. I'm defined by other people's expectations. Who am I? Who do you want me to be? And some of that's just the performance evaluation of my boss, or I've got certain friends, and they've got a personality, and there's things that they like better, and I try to accommodate people. And so when you ask me who I am, if I'm honest, sometimes I just think, who do you want me to be? Other people's strengths make me feel uh, inadequate. It's, I compare myself to the strongest feature of whoever's around me. And so it's kind of like going through high school and I want to be as funny as the class clown. I want to be as smart as the valedictorian. I want to be as athletic as the captain of the football team. Uh, I want to be whatever your strength is. I compare myself to your strength and I just feel inadequate. If something goes wrong, uh, I feel responsible. It's as if I am a, a magnet for responsibility. I just Almost to relieve the situation, I'll just say, I'm sorry. I, I, I just, I don't know. Um, I doubt that, I've, that I'm worthy of God's love. Again, if, if one of my kids came to me and said, Papa, why do you love me? I would be able to very clearly say it and want them to be able to accept, because you're my child and that's all the reason that I need to love you. There's plenty of things that I love about you, but if you ask me why I love you, uh, that's it. Uh, but somehow with God, the fact that He made me and redeemed me, uh, it just feels like there ought to be something else to merit uh, the kind of affection that He has for us. I put other people down to feel better about myself. You know, Maybe I do it in the overt middle school fashion where I make fun of people just so I feel less insecure. Or sometimes it's just that cynical part in my head that goes, really, they can't be that perfect. They can't have it that together. It just makes me sick. 
Jealous of other people's success. Uh, Awkward when I receive a compliment. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Do I say, thank you, yes, you're quite right. Or, oh, no, 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 I'm not like that at all. And then I feel like I'm arguing and I've made it awkward because they just wanted to say something nice. And so I, I do want encouragement, but I don't know what to do with it. And so it just winds up being awkward. Um, constantly thinking, if, if only I were blank. Because if we think about it, in any given situation, you could take something about me, enhance it a little bit, or, or dampen it down a little bit, and it would make the situation better. So in any situation, it makes sense why I could find something that if I were just a little different, the situation would be better. A lack of contentment. I mean, I think of contentment like sleep for the soul. Uh, that time where our soul just gets to rest. And many of us, due to discontentment, uh, it's as if we have soul insomnia. There's never a time when our soul is just at rest. Being easily embarrassed, uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection, those things that, that I'm always just center stage in my own thoughts, trying to figure out what people think of me. Uh, act differently based upon my peers. Uh, social anxiety, just that sense of pressure when I'm around people. I will not stand up for myself or my convictions. I can always come back later and think, I should have said this, I should have done that. And it just it's much clearer uh, in hindsight uh, than it is in the moment. And some of that's just the time of reflection and some of that's insecurity. I assume that people are upset with me, uh, fearful when I try new things. Uh, I have a hard time just resting in the grace of God. And when we come to all of these kinds of things, we, we begin to realize that, that life is just bigger than we are. And, and that's even when it plays by the rules. It just seems like life, life requires more than we have. And so if I, if I could take the goal of our time together and try to crystallize it in, in a word, uh, there's a few words that come to mind. Uh, one is just stability. Uh, kind of like the shocks on your car. I mean, the shocks on your car is what lets you hit a bump with it out absolutely jarring uh, everything inside and you clinking your teeth together in a way that gives you a headache. Uh, there's a sense if we had a sense of identity and purpose, security, that, that we could hit the bumps of life and it wouldn't jar us so much that we felt uh, completely out of control or disoriented. Uh, peace. Somehow we could ride the ups and downs of life and not feel like when things are up that, ah, I've got to keep this up forever. And when things are down, ah, this defines me. Or maybe freedom. Just the freedom to, to face opportunities and not feel like they're expectations. Uh, to face disappointment and them not feel like they define me. Just that I could be free from my circumstances having that kind of defining influence over me. Now, uh, when we talk about this, uh, I wanna, we're going to walk through maybe five things that tend to encapsulate what we're after. Uh, we'll go over them each to its own chapter, but here I'll just give you each one with kind of a defining question. Uh, we want to we know how do we have a Christ-honoring sense of identity where we can just answer the question, who am I? And then a sense of purpose. Why am I here? After that, we'll look at uh, a sense of confidence. Can I do it? And then security. How do I compare? 
And then finally, wisdom. Uh, can I keep it up? Um, that when we hear those things, uh, in our day and age, those, uh, those types of qualities are often encapsulated under the phrase uh, self-esteem. Uh, and if you listen to our day and age, you just listen to our culture, we, we begin to see that our culture would tell us that the absence of self-esteem is what explains everything that goes wrong. And if somehow we could just have more self-esteem, then that would make anything better and right. And so in some ways, self-esteem has become the panacea of our day. It explains everything. In preparing for this talk, I went online and I looked up to see how many how many self-hyphenated words are there? So I went to an online dictionary and I just typed self. Uh, I counted down, and at least at that point in time, on that dictionary, there were 213 self-hyphenated words. And to my recollection, that did not include self-hyphenated. That we, we are just a highly self-oriented culture. Now, Here's the, here's the problem with what we were just talking about, that the absence of self-esteem explains everything that's wrong and the presence of it would cure anything. Is that when something begins to explain everything, it actually explains nothing. I think we can recognize that um, in the way that words like Coca-Cola are used in our day and age. You can go to a restaurant and say, I would like a Coke. And almost inevitably, the waiter or the waitress is going to look at you and say, will Pepsi be okay? In branding, that is actually the opposite. That's like asking somebody for a hot chocolate and them saying, is a cold chocolate okay? That's like going to a sporting goods store and asking for a Carolina jersey and them saying, is a Duke jersey okay? I mean, it is, it is the exact opposite. But because Coke is a word that's begun to mean everything, it actually means nothing. I remember the first time I saw ice cream being sold in a Coke machine. I tapped my wife and I looked. And I said, look, they're selling ice cream in a Coke machine. And I laughed. But it was just a vending machine. There was nothing Coke about it. But I had so associated the brand of Coke uh, with vending machines that I'd even lost the word vending machine in my vocabulary. We do this with Kleenex. Kleenex is not the same thing as tissue. It's a brand name. Kleenex, the brand, could make shoes. The same thing's true with Band-Aid. Band-Aid is not something we put on our boo-boos. It's a, it's a brand, and they happen to make adhesive slips. And so we, we get to that point where we say, when something begins to mean everything, it actually means nothing. And I think there's another part of this that we need to take a look at and just consider for a moment. When we think about our culture... And I've given you a slide here where there are uh, an assortment of media outlets. And, and there are all kinds of media outlets. They're online, cable, print. They're all along the conservative to liberal spectrum. But as you look over those pictures, let me just ask you, when you look at those and you watch or read from those resources, do you generally think that they adhere to a Christian worldview? Are these outlets that would generally adhere to the sense that we were made in the image of God to know and enjoy Him? That because of sin, we are fallen, broken creatures 
who have a bent towards selfishness and our own self-destruction. That the answer to that is that there had to be a substitute for our sin who would live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve so that we could be given a new heart and the righteousness and that that person who came was Jesus Christ and that history is going somewhere, it has a purpose and that that purpose is to glorify God and for us to enjoy Him in heaven. Is there anything about those outlets where you would say they, they tend to agree with us on those things and the even the moral implications that come along with that? Well, I think with a little bit of reflection, we can begin to see that the answer is no. And, and my goal isn't to, to engage some kind of cultural debate here, but just to give us a bit of caution to say, wouldn't it be odd if they disagree with us on all of those things that are so central to who we are and how we understand ourselves as people, And then they would agree with the Christian message, at least as many people put it, that self-esteem is the the most important thing that we're after. But as we said just a moment ago, our, uh, our goal isn't to debate the culture. Our goal is to see what Scripture says about this. So let's just take that bit of caution that we got there and begin to look at uh, a few key passages. Uh, one of those passages that I think is very central to this discussion uh, is what we often call uh, the Great Commandment in Matthew 22. Now this is a passage of Scripture with which uh, whenever I'm in a Christian bookstore, I often play a game with my wife. Uh, I kind of give her a little elbow, I look at her and I say, time me. Uh, and I, I pick a book and, and the competition is this. I, I have 60 seconds to find where they use this passage of Scripture in a way that I don't think there's any textual evidence that it's okay to use it that way. And honestly, if I couldn't consistently win this game, I wouldn't keep playing it because the only person that it's fun for is me. My wife just kind of rolls her eyes and says, okay, go. But let's, let's take a look at the passage and see what it says. Jesus has been asked, what is the greatest law? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And we look at this and we ask the question, was Jesus telling us that we have to love ourselves before we can love anybody else? Because if you look on the next page of your listening guide, you'll see kind of two pyramids. And there's really two ways that we can go about this passage. We can start with the foundation, which is we have to love ourselves before anybody else. And we can put that at the bottom. And we can say that is what Jesus was trying to communicate. And so we have to love ourselves before we can love our neighbor. Now, that is the way the passage is commonly used. And people just don't do what has to be done next if you're going to follow the logical progression. But because it, it becomes really obvious that it is odds with what Scripture says. Because if we complete the pyramid, it would say we have to love ourselves before we love anybody else, so before we love our neighbor. And we have to love self and neighbor before we can love God. But in that case, it makes the Christian message about what we have to do instead of what God has already done. And we begin to realize that's just at odds with the Gospel. And it doesn't sound like the rest of Scripture very much either. And so we come back and we say, what would it sound like? 
Well, I think what we have here is Jesus trying to make it very clear for this very reason, this kind of discussion that we're having. And the reason I can say he was trying to make it clear is because he used lots of number words. He said, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that foundation is our relationship with God. It's that same thing that would be said in 1 John when he says, we love because he first loved us. It's out of the security of that relationship where we accept by faith what we could never earn so that no man could boast that God has done everything necessary to give us a full and complete life so that we would be loved in a way uh, that set us up for every other relationship. And then Jesus said, second, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, uh, with this, I think it's important to realize that I don't think Jesus is condemning all forms of self-love. I don't think having a sense of voice, a sense of uh, competence, a confidence, I don't think we have to say all of those things are some form of pride or uh, egotism or narcissism. He's just saying that that sense of confidence and satisfaction can can only last, it can only be satisfying when it's third, not first. So let's take a look at some other passages of Scripture where we would begin to see this. Uh, one of those might be Luke nine twenty three and 24, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, for whoever would put himself first, whoever would love himself before he loves anybody else, will lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever's willing to surrender it, who's willing to love God and love neighbor first, will save it. Or a passage like Ephesians 5, 28, which is one that we probably think of most intuitively in terms of marriage because that's what it's about. But there's a statement in there that echoes the kind of language we're talking about here. Uh, in Ephesians five twenty eight, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So ladies, let me take a survey. If we interpret this passage in the way that many people interpret Matthew 22, let's just see if this is appealing for you. How many of you here would want a man that would take this passage and say, you know what, I need to love myself before anybody else. I need to make sure that all that I want is taken care of, my needs are met, and then once that is taken care of, whatever is left, that is what I'm supposed to give to my wife. Ladies, anybody, any takers, anybody, men, let's... Let's pay attention. Um, Now, another passage that may be even more disturbing comes in a warning from the Apostle Paul about what the end times will be like, what those characteristics of the last days will be. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, Paul starts off, he says, Understand this, that in the last day there will come times of difficulty. Well, why? What, What will they look like? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid 
such people. Now, more than the fact that lovers of self made the list, when we realize how Paul wrote, this becomes even more striking. Because whenever Paul would get excited and kind of lathered up and on a roll like this, where he's just popping off a list, he had a consistent habit. He would take whatever that crowning thing is that explains everything else that he's getting ready to talk about, and he would put it first. And so we we see that in the fruit of the Spirit, where Paul would say um, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that there is this crowning virtue of love. And it's out of that that all of these other virtues flow. And that we look at it here, because that's what Gordon Fee would tell us. He says, Paul's list begins appropriately with lovers of themselves, since from such misdirected love all other vices flow. And so we look at this passage and we ask, is that, is that accurate? Is that what's going on? Well, if we're lovers of self, are we lovers of money? Well, yes, because money gets us whatever we want. Are we proud and arrogant? Well, yes, that's kind of the essence of what it means to, to love me some me. Are we abusive and disobedient to authority figures? Yes, if we love ourselves most, then anybody else who gets in our way just needs to be taken care of or dismissed. You know, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yes, because it's about me and what I want. Um, Now, I think we can look at this another way and just ask the question, what gets in the way of me living a wise and fulfilling life? Is it that I don't love me enough, or is it that I love me too much? And so we ask the question, why don't I keep a budget? I know better than to spend more money than I make. That is foolish. It's an unwise choice. It's going to reap lots of repercussions for me. So in that moment where there's something that I want that I can't afford, that I just think is going to make me happy and bring me some comfort, Do I buy that because I don't like me and I'm trying to punish me and I'm just kind of down on me? Or do I buy that because I love me and I want to make me happy more than anything else and so I just buy the lie that this is okay? Parents, with our kids, why why are we too harsh with our kids in those times when we are? Is it because we just don't love me enough and I'm just kind of down? Or is it because I want some peace and quiet and you kids need to get it in line? I think it's much more because it's about me. Why do we lie? Do we lie because we're trying to take care of everybody else? Or do we lie because we're something about ourselves that we don't want people to know where we're trying to cover it up out of this form of self-protection? When we look at it, whenever life begins to be sinful or foolish, it has much more to do with thinking too much and being too self-protective. That is the cause of what disrupts our life. Let me come at it another way here, just in trying to help us think this through. Because I think oftentimes, uh, we don't even really know what kind of word self-esteem is. If I were to ask you, is self-esteem a noun or a verb? Uh, Which would you say? Is self-esteem more like the word power, which is a noun? Or is it more like the word weightlifting, which is a verb? Weightlifting, a way that I get something, power. Well, 
I think it's a verb that we use like a noun. It is a process. It is a way to obtain something. We are telling ourselves, if I love myself more, I will get certain things. And those things would be what we talked about earlier in terms of identity, purpose, security, confidence, wisdom. But self-esteem is a, it's a process. It's a verb. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it the right and God-honoring and effective way to get what we're after? And I don't think it's just Scripture that would tell us no. Uh, There is a changing tide when it comes to um, how we relate to ourselves. And it's not just a Christian changing of the tide. Even secular circles, as we'll look at in just a moment, are reaching the same conclusion. Uh, But the book Purpose Driven Life, probably one of the most influential books uh, in in our generation, Uh, It is one that has sold as many copies as about any original publication to our day and age. If I ask you, what is the first sentence of the first chapter of that book? Do you know what it is? The first thing Rick Warren said, it's not about you. Not because he was trying to condemn us or put us down, but just because if we were going to live the purpose-driven life, we had to realize that life was about something bigger than us. Uh, Max Licato, who comes from a different denomination, a different uh, theological perspective, would write his book, It's Not About Me. Uh, Chuck Colson, in kind of uh, his colorful, flavorful way, uh, was referring to a study we'll talk about in just a moment. But he said, you know, when I was growing up, it was all about bacon and eggs for breakfast. I mean, bacon and eggs, that's what you needed to eat. That was the breakfast of champions. And then the experts figured out what was going on with cholesterol. And they said, don't do that. You're all going to die of heart attacks. He says, in our day and age, it was, it was all about self-esteem. Love yourself more. And now they're starting to realize, don't, now nah, that's not what it's about. We're all going to become a bunch of insecure narcissists. Or David Henderson, in his book, Culture Shift, speaking to the church, he says, because God no longer occupies center stage, terms like self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, and self-fulfillment, none of which grace the pages of Scripture, begin to dominate the church's conversation. Meanwhile, other self-words, straight from the pages of the Bible, like self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-denial, and self-control, they slip into disuse. Self, great big and smack dab in the middle, squeezes out the notions of a holy God, a fallen self, an undeserved gift of grace in Jesus Christ, and a divine call on one's whole life. When this happens... We may be preaching. We may be even sharing our faith. But what we are communicating is not genuine Christianity. Because you see, in Christianity, the one place self cannot be is at the center. Because in Christianity, that is the rightful place of God alone. Now, as we look at this, as I said, it's not just Christians. Uh, There was a 25-year longitudinal study. Now, I recognize 25-year longitudinal study probably uh, does not mean a whole lot to you, so let me explain why that kind of vocabulary is significant. What it means is they didn't just take a survey of a group of people at one point in time and say, how do you feel about yourself and how is life going? It was for 25 years they kept up with the same group of people. There was researchers at Florida State University, University of Utah, Brown University, and University of British Columbia in Canada. 
So different areas. These are not stalwarts of conservative Christianity. They're taking large populations. They start with them as college students. They track them for 25 years. Every year, they give them a self-esteem inventory. How do you feel about yourself? They give them, the self, they give them a general life satisfaction and productivity inventory. How is life going for you? They do this every year for 25 years with a big group of population from people all different parts of the world. And they ask the question, does self-esteem correlate with life satisfaction and productivity? And to their surprise, the answer was no. It didn't. One of the populations where they found the highest level of self-esteem was in the prison system. These were people who thought they were right and nobody should cross them. And who are you to question me? They loved themselves boldly. They went back and tried to go back through the research and they said, if it's not self-esteem, what is it that correlates with life satisfaction and life productivity? Uh, And the self-word that they came up with uh, that best captured that was self-discipline. But actually sounds a lot like what Jesus was saying in Luke 9, 23 and 24. It was funny, I was teaching this uh, same kind of material in another location, and when I finished, a lady came up to me, and she said, uh, hello, introduced herself, gave her name, uh, and I have a, un- a PhD from the University of Kansas. My immediate thought was, uh-oh, because when people introduce themselves as having a PhD from a major university, that usually does not mean um, that they've come to tell you how much they like your talk. And so I'm kind of bracing, and she says, I wanted to know if I could ask you a question. I said, Sure. She said, why are you still harping on this? And it kind of took me back. I wasn't expecting that. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the clinical research on this has proven what you're talking about for 10, 20 years. Most of this is old news, what you're talking about. And as I thought about it for a moment, I said, well, the reason I I take the time to talk about this is because my audience is the church. And this kind of self-esteem theory is still very strong and vibrant in the life of the church. And she said, you know, that's interesting. Because I went to school and she gave the name of a, um, a Christian author that, that I think I recognized immediately. I think most of us would. He said when we were in school, uh, he wrote his first book with his dad and gave dad's name, who was also a, a prevalent Christian author. And he said, or she said, when we were in school, he wrote his first book. And I thought it was odd that he didn't share it with any of the classmates. So I went and I bought a copy, and this is the kind of stuff that was in it, the self-esteem material. And I, I went to him and I asked, and I said, why is it that, that you're writing this when you know it's not empirically true? And she said, I never got an answer that was satisfying. Well, they asked the lead researcher at Florida State University the same kind of question uh, when his research came out. They said, if what your findings if they're true, why, why, is, why is self-esteem so popular? And you can almost hear the cynicism in his answer. He said, because it makes people feel good and it sells books. But it's not just this one study. Like University, Harvard University, again, kind of varsity level of academia. Uh, their mental health newsletter put out a study saying that there is a correlation between the rise in self-esteem teaching and the rise of narcissism. University of Georgia put out a study and said that there is a correlation between the rise in self-esteem teaching in our school and the fall of test scores in our school. And it actually holds true with other research where when you look at self-esteem as the 
treatment modality for depression. And we ask the question, is, is self-esteem theory effective for the treatment of depression? And what they found is that initially there is a short-term boost. You give people affirmational statements about themselves. And, and for a short period of time, they feel better. But then you don't teach them uh, the life skills that they need. You don't walk with them through making the hard life choices and how to manage uh, their bodies well. You just you help them feel better about themselves without any of those skill or lifestyle challenges. And what happens is, is after that short-term boost, they crash. And the second condition is actually latter than the first. And that's kind of what's going on in our schools. We make kids feel really good about themselves, but we don't push them uh, to learn. And then the test scores are actually lower. Now, it is, it is one thing to say, this is a theory that doesn't work, and it's not one that is biblically supported, it's not one that's empirically supported, and if that's all we do, then we're, we're really not much more than critics. And so debunking one system without replacing it isn't of much value. And so what we're about to do is we're going to turn and walk through uh, five areas, taking a full chapter each, of how do we develop the kinds of things that people want when they say, I have a low self-esteem. And so we'll, we'll take time and we'll talk about confidence, which is this positive expectation that circumstances will not be overwhelming or defeating. How do we get that? Identity. A consistent sense of self that is not dependent on circumstances or peer affirmation. How do we do that? purpose, a direction or life agenda that is motivating and gives meaning to the smaller decisions that we make. Yes, that would be wonderful. That's what I want. Security, a disposition of stability in the midst of uncertainty that allows for clarity of thought and intentionality of decision. And then finally, wisdom, which in many ways may be the least intuitive of the ones that we're going to look at, but let me explain why it made the list. As I would sit down and talk with people who would say I have a low self-esteem, one of the things that I would hear, in addition to the other things we've already laid out, is people would be saying, I've made a lot of bad choices and I've got regrets and I don't think that I'm in a position to make better choices in the future where I could be optimistic about what my future holds. And so what they were saying is, in the language of I have a low self-esteem, is they were saying I lack wisdom. And so that's the ability to make decisions according to preset, effective principles resulting in a productive and enjoyable life. Those are the things we're going to look at one chapter at a time to ask the question, how does God want to give us those things? Because I definitely believe He does, and He wants to give us those things in Christ and through the gospel.